Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm uh, Jerry McGinn, the uh, Executive Director for the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. And I'd like to welcome you to today's webinar, OTAs and Everything Else. This is a special edition of the Acquisition Talk podcast, which is done by, led by one of our fellows in the center, Mr. Eric Lofgren. And we're excited to have with our special guest, Mr. Ben McMartin who is the guru of OTAs and was the, um, the, one of the principal authors of the uh, Other Transactions Authority Guide for DOD. And so I, I, since I have the captive audience, I can't but give a 30-second um, advertisement for the center. Our mission is to be a nexus for government, industry, and academia to collaborate on the issues that we grapple with every day. These are the business policy regulatory issues impacting our half-trillion-dollar ecosystem um, that is the business of government and how companies um, work to support the government. So today's effort, will I'm going to introduce Ben and Eric in um, just a second, but I wanted to tell you about some upcoming events. So next week, actually, we're having an event based on um, a white paper that Eric did on, uh, it was a very thought-provoking um, piece on how to structure the budget, uh, restructure the budget, and get away from the 1960s uh, PBBS model um, and as a frontier for acquisition reform. So for that, we're very excited to have former um, CAPE Director Bob Daigle, former um, Deputy Under Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy and uh, Major Hill Staffer Bill Greenwald, as well as the former under, uh, Secretary of Defense for Acquisition, Katrina McFarland, for that discussion. So um, please sign up for that on our website. Uh, then also in September, we're finalizing our plan for another white paper event and that's on intellectual property and government procurement. That is with our senior fellow, Jim Hasek. Uh, and that's so stay tuned for that. And then our big event is our, con- is our conference, which we do um, our second annual in um, partnership with Defense Acquisition University, uh, which uh, is virtual this year, as uh, most things are. These are all virtual events. Um, the first module of that will be focusing on building resiliency in this changed world that we're in. And we're very fortunate to have the, um, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, um, Adam Smith, as our keynote. And then we're having two additional panels on strengthening supply chains and uh, cybersecurity maturation model certification implementation, which is a big focus for everyone these days. So um, those are our upcoming events. But today we have Eric Lofgren is going to um, um, interview and discuss with Ben McMartin. So Ben is the managing partner for Public Spend Forum, but he spent a career as a, in the Army as a civilian contracting officer and chief of acquisition management for the CCDC Ground Naval Systems Center up in um, Warren, Michigan. Interviewing him will be Eric Lofgren, who is a fellow in our center. And so I'll turn it over to him to, uh, to start the work. Great, thanks, Jerry. Great. I'm pleased to have this first live recording of the Acquisition Talk podcast and my very special guest, Ben McMartin. Um, so I had, you know, a list of questions, of course, that I was going to ask Ben here. 
And you wrote some very provocative things this morning. And, you know, my first instinct here as an interviewer, of course, is to kind of take one thing out of context and then put them on the spotlight. But I'm not going to do that. But I'll, I'll actually, you know, introduce this a little bit with a story here about, you know, the history and where we are with uh, procurement and then get Ben's take on what he was saying um, in his post this morning. So the way I think about, you know, the structure of defense acquisition before World War II, you know, a large portion of, of the development work was actually performed in-house by the government. And it was done on this kind of intimate basis. We still use contracts. Those were arm length. But a lot of the development, the project work was actually done in-house. And when contracting exploded in the 40s and the 50s with the war, you know, there, it still continued to be fairly intimate, right? During the war and after, we had negotiated and cost-plus contracts that kind of became the norm with the armed services procurement regulation. And then government still had the bureaus and arsenals to lead the significant efforts with in-house talent. And so decisions were more based on this kind of technical merit from the contractor. And then you also had a lot of competition in industry. And we start to see this shift from kind of a collaborative handshake with industry and the government to more of an adversarial relationship in the 60s. And so, you know, even as late as 1958, the F4 specifications, for example, fit on two pages of the, of the contract. And then in the 60s, you start to see these total responsibility contracts, right? So for example, the C5 was a, was a prime example, had almost 3,000 pages in the request for proposal going out to industry. And so you see this big shift in how contracts were used. And you also start to see the Truth in Negotiations Act in 1962. So you have more of an arm's length negotiation based on internal costing systems. And then that was kind of formalized into the cost accounting standards by Rickover, who was the main lobbyist for that effort in the late 60s. You know, Rickover and others like Ernest Fitzgerald used to say during that time, you know, government work was anti-social work with industry. But I kind of see what you were saying this morning as kind of expressing a desire to go back to more of that technical merit-based closeness with industry and the government in the 1940s and 50s and using that kind of competitive environment. So with that in mind, now I'll put you on the spotlight with, <laughs> with what you said this morning out of context, and I would like you to put it back into context. You said, if your level of collaboration with industry feels dirty and wrong, then you're almost doing it right. So what was going on there, Ben? <laughs> All right, Eric, thank you for having me on. Thanks to George Mason University. And obviously you guys have your finger on the pulse. When I see the series that's coming up that talks about CMMC funding reform, right? These are the items that are at the forefront of everything right now. But at the end of the day, this all comes back to collaboration. And so what I was saying this morning is never has there been a time for collaboration to be more important between government and industry. And I say that for this reason. If you go back to the 50s, let's start where you started, right? Let's go back to the, you know, the 40s and 50s. And we have a government built of scientists and technologists and lab professionals who are designing new things that don't exist and working with industry to design and to manufacture those things that don't exist. And that trend continues for a while as the government invests in 
governmenty specific, and that's a technical term, governmenty, governmenty specific things and processes and, and technologies. And in that environment, you have an acquisition system that grows up where the government identifies what the new cool thing is going to be. It invests money in areas where no one else can afford to invest in. And then it reaches out to industry as a partner to collaborate on that. Meaning, how do we manufacture? How do we produce? And how do we sustain these systems and these ideas that we've come up with? That was a great model to have the requirements process built up around because the government is going to have all the experts and they're going to have the money and they're going to research in areas that no one else would even think to flush money down the toilet aisle, let's say. They can do experiments that no one else would even dream of funding. And that was great during that time. But as we know, that trend has not continued. You know, the technologies today are not developed by the government. Those research projects are R&D projects, and that's where the money's at. And so when the government goes out with a requirement for the technology, it's not the expert on what the technology is, how to produce it, and it still needs that information on how to manufacture and sustain those systems. So in this environment, guess what? We need to collaborate, all right? The government needs to collaborate. Industry is doing the investment. Industry is doing the testing. Industry is developing the new technology. And then they're manufacturing and then they're sustaining, okay? And they're doing it on their terms. Industry terms, meaning as long as I can sell it, it's a product worth making. Um, so from a government perspective, the, this instance where you can have old school requirements contracting, meaning my customer comes and tells me I need a thing and then gives me the 3,000 pages you referred to. And then I can put the 3,000 pages out to industry and say, this is the thing I want. Tell me how you'll make it. And then we'll have a transactional back and forth, right? And that transactional back and forth looks like what? It looks like I send an email to you. You submit through some kind of system or email back to me. We send out something that was called items for discussion in, in my earlier part of my career and then later on ENs or evaluation notices later on in my career. And we're going to do hundreds of those back and forth, right? And what, what do they look like? They say, hey, I saw your proposal and I don't understand this section. And then the, the vendor comes back and says, well, what I meant was this. And then, you know, the government comes back and asks the exact same question again. And we do that over and over and over again through a long protracted process, which is admittedly protracted. No one's out there saying, you know what, the, the current process works perfectly fine and it's quick and, it, and it's getting us what we want. Everyone's saying it's protracted and yet what's being done about it. And so why do we need collaboration? We need collaboration because government and industry each have a piece of the puzzle, but industry has a much larger piece of the puzzle than it ever had before in terms of new technology development. And so collaboration is needed and that's recognized. Here's, here's where I want to go a little step further and where, when it needs to be dirty and feel wrong, all right? Because from a training perspective on the acquisition workforce, how does the acquisition workforce feel about collaboration? And so a lot of the laws have changed. You know, in 2016, we, we got an infusion of uh, authorities that, you know, I hate to call them acquisition reform authorities because we have so many decades of what we call reform. But let's say we got new, great, shiny authorities uh, in 2016, 17, and so on. And this gave us the tool to do what? Not too much than we already had tools to do, but an encouragement to collaborate. 
to open up that conversation, to negotiate terms and conditions and revise terms and conditions and revise scope and negotiate scope and co-develop scope. And that is a complete change from where we were in, in my time, even in R&D contracting in 2008, let's say, or 2009. So we got this big shift on, on the ability to communicate. But from the acquisition workforce, that still feels dirty. You know, in, in 20, I want to say 15 or 16, o, uh, OFPP put out the Mythbusters series, right? And, and there's four parts to the Mythbusters series. So they came out over a, a period of time. And the Mythbusters had to actually get in the weeds and say, if this situation happens, then it's okay to talk. And it had to walk through different scenarios. I can tell you in my time inter interfacing with folks and saying, hey, you know, you can get out there and collaborate and talk and leverage this new authorities. And people would say, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't really think it's a thing. And then I'd say, well, you know, the Mythbusters said, and most people would say, well, what are the Mythbusters, right? Even the things that were, that were released to try to say, hey, here's some examples of how you collaborate, they didn't even become part of the workforce discussion. In my experience at the workforce level, we're still in that environment where I'm worried about going to jail, even though I don't understand what that means. I'm worried about going to jail. I'm not really communicating. I've got these new authorities that say I can communicate and collaborate, but I don't really trust that that's what that means. So I would advise people, if you're communicating, collaborating with industry and leveraging the new authorities and it just feels wrong, then you're pretty close to collaborating, right? Because it's going to feel different than what you've been trained, at least over the last 15 years, of, for the folks that have been around that long. Yeah, that's great. I, I hear what you're saying with the collaboration. And so I want to kind of start shifting into other transactions, which you are the guru of, of course, and, or one of the many gurus around, right? And so other transactions, pretty steadily, actually, I was looking at the uh, FBDS data been growing about 70% a year pretty steadily over the last four years. And we don't really know about 2020 yet, but it, indications seem to be that it's still picking up uh, quite a bit. So OTAs is one of these areas where there's by statute, you know, government can go out and more closely collaborate with industry, you know, outside of the federal acquisition re regulations and all that. So can you explain a little bit about you know, what is this new land, you know, called other transaction that's kind of a different alternative? And then what is the best case scenario for seeing that continue to grow at 70% or whatever into the indefinite future rather than peaking and then going down again? Yeah, so, so and I know you've had, you've had smarter people on your podcast than me. All right. There's, there, there are a few people out there that really drive this, this train when it comes to OTA adoption. Um, and I was lucky enough in my career to not only develop OTA uh, as a contracting officer, agreements officer, I was also able to transition to the customer side and manage OTA from a customer perspective and be, be a manager of consortia OTA, standalone OTA, be a customer on other people's consortia OTA. So I've got a chance to look across a whole spectrum of how OTA can be leveraged uh, in a lot of different manners. And so a couple things about OTA that, that I like to speak to that rarely come up or sometimes come up is, is talking about 
OTA from a perspective of the purpose of OTA? At the beginning, you know, the, the question here posed was, you know, how do, we, how do we continue the new authority? Well, we all know that it's an old authority. You know, a question I'm often asked is, is when will they be going away? I, I would say, well, did they go away between 1994 and today? They did not. So uh, when will they go away? Never. You know, how much will they be used is a great question. Uh, because between the, you know, between the 90s and, and 2016 when the law changed, OTAs were used throughout for DOD, but not very much, right? And they look very different than they do today. One thing about OTAs is if you look at the early literature articles in 20, let's say 2016. 2016 is a, is a great year. If you ever want to go and pull every article that mentioned OTA from 2016, by the way, you can do it. There's not too many. You can pull all the articles from 2016 and you will see an extremely common theme throughout every one of them, which is someone wrote a couple talking points and then they were copied, copied about 50 times across those articles, which is OTAs are the fast way to get around the regulation, right? So the first theme of OTA from 2016 is this is a way to cut corners and go fast. And that was kind of the, the theme of, of OTA in 2016. And the purpose is to get to non-traditional companies and expand the defense industrial base. And that's the primary purpose of them. I would disagree with every one of those ideas. And I, I think they've evolved. And I'm sure a lot of the folks that have come on your show would also disagree with those ideas. And so what I would say is OTAs are a way for the government to operate on commercial terms to get its hands on the best technology, which may come from a non-traditional contractor, and it may not. And it may go fast, and it probably won't go fast. And so, and that would be both my opinion and my experience, which is, you know, OTAs are a custom agreement. It's no different than if you were to sit down at the table and, and draft out a commercial transaction between two commercial companies. You're going to have a starting point. You're going to have some kind of institutional terms and conditions that you start with. But at the end of the day, you're going to negotiate at arm's length and come to an agreement. And there's nothing fast about that. The second piece is this notion that it's a socioeconomic program or a way for us to do more small business set-asides is a piece that I think has really hurt OTAs from the perspective of are they successful or not? It's an easy thing to measure. I can measure it easily so it feels good. You know, hey, are we successful? Did you spend all your money? Did you spend it on time? And are the awardees non-traditionals? You know, yes, yes, yes. Okay, OTAs is okay, right? What a terrible way to measure the authority. The authority is to transition technology at the speed of relevance if we want to believe what the national strategy says. So in terms of the what is on OTA, I think it needs a revamping of, of the messaging on OTA. It is a tool to transition technology on the speed of commercial speed. By the way, that's not always fast. It's definitely not 30 days or less. Uh, another theme that you'll find from 2016 is not only do articles say that it's all about uh, expanding into non-traditionals, but you'll also see the 30 day or less myth, which was very painful in 2016 as a contracting officer when your customer comes in and says, good news, OTAs take 30 days or less. So you got, you're on the clock, right? You got 30 days to go. So that's where I would say OTAs are. 
where are OTAs going? Uh, I have a very unpopular opinion that I've been told on where OTAs are going. My opinion is OTAs will continue to increase provided that industry buys in on OTAs. I know I believe that industry will drive whether OTAs are around or not. That's an unpopular opinion. But I believe that because industry will decide whether to play in the OTA game or not. Ultimately, they will. And so you say, well, the industry will play wherever the, wherever the money's at. Traditional defense contractors will. But folks that are just flirting with the idea of working with DOD will only play where the environment is right for their company. It doesn't matter that the, the money's there. So I think it's going to be a matter of success stories and industry partners buying in and actually bringing technology and transitioning technology. And those examples will be the future of OTA more than anything that the government is going to do. Yeah, I, I hear you on the timelines. You know, I, we've been tracking DIU, Defense Innovation Unit, and their original goal was, and they're a big user of OTAs, their original goal was to get on the contract in 60 days. I think it's hovering closer to 90, right? And that's still, by government standards, pretty darn good, <laughs> right? You know, for, for OTAs, I think this continued growth, and, I, and I'll push back on your, your perspective here a little bit, that industry needs to drive it because it seems like continued growth of the OTAs, you can get, you can squeeze a little bit more out through new prototypes and the like. But I think a lot of the growth might actually occur if they actually exercise the ability to take an OTA into production, right? And then use that as a continuing vehicle for recurring revenue. I think to the extent that that happens, you will get industry buy-in. But, you know, I've been hearing some inklings that industry potentially finds itself in what I might call like double jeopardy. So they win the OTA up front, and then a lot of that information just goes into a regular RFP that's done through the FAR, rather than kind of carrying that through through an OTA. And so the companies don't really feel like the OTA was the best mechanism necessarily for them to do that. And eventually they're just gonna have to go onto FAR-based contracts. So, you know, in my view, I think that that is kind of like a government driving function of whether they can make that transition, bridge the valley of death using an OTA rather than the industry. So what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, so that's a great point. The production follow-on piece is an interesting piece. You know, I, I don't need to tell you because you're a scholar of this, but if you go back to the, the Senate hearings around future combat systems, you'll see a lot of discussion from DOD on the desire to be able to go into follow-on production. And so that, the discussion about the ability to go into follow-on production has been around a long, long time. And then the scope of what that follow-on production would look like has been around for a long, long time. From the current status of how it's being used, I can't give you a success story. I apologize because the reality is there are some success stories, by the way, but the, the large majority of the reality is that prototype projects are, are completed. And then to go into production, there's a number of things that are happening in between. The data is being put into a traditional RFP, like you said, and being competed in the RFP, RFP traditional far part 15 cents of the, of the word, right? Or technology providers at the prototype level are engineering firms. They have no desire whatsoever to produce hardware. They want to simply license that out and have someone else produce that. 
so th there's a number of different examples of why it's going the way it's going. I can tell you that I, I said recently on, on something I spoke about, if the DOD wants to retain the production piece of this, they're going to have to use it. And they're going to have to use it with other transaction production vehicles. It's not good enough to just go into FAR contracts as well. And to date, you're not seeing big systems going from prototype straight into sole source follow-on production. That being said, there's a couple success stories out and those success stories really have to do with running multiple prototypes through at the prototype phase and then going forward with one afterwards. So that's a strategy that fo some folks are using. But the idea that, you know, we're gonna go, hey, we're gonna go prototyping, we're gonna go straight into production. Folks are very uncomfortable with it. And unfortunately, I, I, could, I, I could definitely see Congress looking at it and saying, all right, it's been five years. You know, if this comes up and if we're at 21 and we haven't gone to it, I could definitely see Congress going back and saying, hey, it's been five years, we've had the authority, we don't see systems going through from prototype to production. Uh, there's really not a need for this. And that's the risk that DOD runs. Uh, whether that'll detract from folks wanting to work in the prototyping world, I think it's a different group of vendors that really operate in that prototyping world. Yeah, I, I wonder, I wanna get your view on this because it seems like transition in, from prototyping into production of a system through an OTA you know, that's very much the way that the government does it, at least. It's for like these whole weapon systems concepts, right? And so that's not really where these new entrants are likely going to be playing for the most part. And I guess the question is, are they supposed to actually be transitioning into production or under the prime? Or is it that government really needs to start disaggregating these larger systems into, you know, various families of different components independently progressed in their own way and that kind of like provides more avenues for someone that's kind of a new entrant into the defense sector that doesn't have to be an integrator of a total weapon system concept such that the government would be directly dealing that with them through an OTA. Yeah and I think I mean you hit the nail on the head right there right I mean this all comes back to the requirements process at the end of the day. Whether you're using OTA for your contracting solution or middle tier for your program management solution or some funding solution, you know, based on your work, right? The next level of reform is in funding, right? When it comes to speed, it was, hey, let's fix contracting, then we'll fix program management. Well, guess what? Funding's next. Um, and I truly admire your work on that. But when we come back to this piece of it on OTA and who the players are, the requirements process, if it's for a full up system, dictates already who the players are gonna be. So I have seen some really nice requirements that have come out and I'm gonna give a shout out to the ground vehicle community who came out and looked at a problem set of capabilities. This is the way that you build a system from the ground up. You come out with a, a prototype solicitation for capabilities in the robotics sphere and then you build up different capabilities and then you're able to transition those to whoever your OEM manufacturing company is gonna be or assembly shop as folks like to call them, right? But at the end of the day, the idea that, you know, hey, we're gonna use OTA and middle tier and it's going to fix our problem of only having a few solutions and we're still gonna put out a, a billion dollar prototyping effort that's supposed to go in production. The requirement has already dictated who the players are on that. 
So to me, it goes back, it doesn't have anything to do with OTA. It has everything to do with, are you trying to solve problems or are you trying to fill requirements? And um, that is an issue that goes back to the program management and the requirements community. Yeah, definitely. I hear you on the more kind of intimate, nonlinear nature of where a requirement comes from and its interaction with technology. It's, it's funny, it's just, you know, we're having the same debates <laughs> that people have been having for decades, right? Just kind of seems hard to get it right in government. I want you to convince me, though, that an OTA is a better vehicle for onboarding non-traditionals and scaling them than a good contract officer with an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. Why does OTA give you an advantage over going with fixed price task orders, small incremental ones in an IDIQ? Yeah, like that, that's a great question because I'm going to give you the answer that you don't expect, which is my fastest contracts ever have been FAR contracts. So if you're just looking for pure speed, task order, delivery order, SIBR phase three, these are all way faster mechanisms to do contracting if you're just looking for straight speed. But let's talk about technology transition. Let's talk about a, a, a different view of it. IDIQs are a great tool for parts and services. And so I, for parts and services, um, I like those two tools for sure. But from an OTA perspective, if you're, if you're focused, your acquisition team is focused on transition of the technology, then OTA is, a, is an amazing tool. And the reason I say that is because there's going to be some shift in focus and how you're going to change the direction of the process in true R&D. And so from a contracting perspective, people, people always give me a funny eye when I say this. In true R&D contracting, things don't work out all the time. And sometimes they don't work out in the first week. And sometimes you got to change the scope. And sometimes you got to redo funding. And that's research and development. And so in the OTA world, things are really left open to be shifted and moved throughout the project. In the contracting world, we feel a little more comfortable with cleaning everything out and making everything very direct and, and very, this is a requirement, you deliver it, you get paid kind of thing, or cost reimbursement, you perform to this exact scope, I'll scope out every last thing you do, and then you deliver on the scope and then and you'll get paid. OTA's advantage is not in speed, OTA's advantage is in the ability to collaborate and change the scope and shift the focus with a goal. It's not the requirement you're trying to meet, you're trying to meet the goal. And at the end of the day, the goal is to transition some technology. I love that there. So I, why don't you just uh, take David's uh, comment there real quick. First, he said, what about 2373 for straight speed? You know, so what is 2373 and then, you know, why not? Yeah, so 2373 is an amazing authority. It is a preferred authority for R&D per the 2018 NDAA. Um, and it allows for procurement for experimental purposes. It is a two paragraph statute. There is no regulation, okay? This is a, a simple statute that says, go buy some stuff, government, in some certain areas. It does have technical areas that has to fall within. Buy stuff within these technical areas and then experiment on it. It is not an end. The second paragraph of the statute really just lays out 
hey, don't use this as an end around to buy all your supplies and services, right? Don't cheat. That's all the second paragraph says. But in the first paragraph, think about the power of this. For someone who worked acquisition for a lab like myself, we buy things to experiment on all the time. And to do a giant procurement to get a bunch of things in that all we're going to do is take them and run experiments on them or baseline or do foreign comparative testing or any number of reasons to buy something and, and run experiments or test on it. The lab does this all day long. So this is an amazing authority. I will tell you that this authority is not used despite the fact that it was, it is a preferred authority. There's a couple pockets of air force that use it. There's at least one pocket of army I know that uses it, but the way that it's being used, in my opinion, is not in line with the spirit of the statute. There's no competition requirement for 2373. The objective is buy stuff and then experiment on it. And if you look at any number of 2373 solicitations, God, that's a terrible thing to hear, a solicitation for a non-competitive 2373. These solicitations exist because they've instituted their own competitive process in here. So to answer why aren't they fast? Because people are misusing the authority. They're making their own competition out of it. And then they're applying very far like competitive procedures, processes, documentations, and reports along with 2373. The folks that are great at it, just go out, buy it, and they, you can use an OTA or purchase order or a number of different instruments under the authority, but they just go out and buy the technology and experiment on it. Can they be fast? They can be lightning fast, provided that you have the right people working it. Yeah, so from what I hear what you're saying, there's OTs aren't for speed necessarily, they're for collaboration, right? And we kind of see, I think, acquisition officers in the government, they tend to bring in a lot of their training from the FAR and other things into those processes. And I think that's just kind of natural. You, you kind of want a place to start at. You kind of revert back to what you had been doing, but you do it in a slightly mixed up way or a new way. So I had Rick Dunn, you know, on the podcast earlier. And when he was talking about OTAs, he said that they need to be uniquely crafted with the project in mind right? So don't use templates, don't bring things from the far land into OT land, right? Kind of like reinvent it, right? And that seems kind of daunting to a lot of people. So I also had Peter Levine on the podcast and I asked him about this and he took, you know, the other side. He said, you know, contract officers and program officials, they can't reinvent the wheel for every single thing in an OT through this collaborative process, right? You know, there's a great deal of wisdom already accumulated in the regulation. So how do you see this kind of dichotomy between, okay, I'm using OTs as a collaborative instrument to do something completely new, completely unique, tailored to the task that's not using all this other, you know, history and regulations versus the regulations are there because they structure and provide institutional knowledge into that contracting process. Yeah. And so Peter is 100% right and Rick is 100% wrong. And he'll love that I said that. When it comes to the process of actually negotiating and drafting a relationship, because at the end of the day, that's what this is, right? Uh, We can call it an agreement or a contract or whatever you want, but you're building a long-term prototyping project. It's going to be a relationship. Things are going to go right and things are going to go wrong. And so it, it can't be any more 
in the weeds than when you're negotiating and drafting scope for, for an OTA. That being said, anybody who's worked in the private sector and worked in commercial transactions know that you don't come to the, the meeting with the potential business partner and you don't have a form book or a list of contracts institutional to your firm or some kind of list of terms that you know have been litigated and you know how they come out. It, it would not be wise to draft terms that you don't know how they litigate. I spent my time before coming to government contracting and commercial transactions and litigation. So you have to know how the terms will litigate before you go and craft new terms. So I disagree on that it's completely new, but Rick would say that I don't really disagree with them because he would say, when you come to that blank sheet of paper, you have all that knowledge, that institutional knowledge in your head and you're able to digest it and apply what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. I think that is giving contracting officers a lot of credit. In a commercial transaction arena, you don't have something called a contracting officer or procurement specialist. You have attorneys and they get paid to make sure that the terms that are crafted aren't going to cause liability to the client. And so when I think about drafting a new OTA, I think it's really heavy legal work. And yes, you're gonna pull in the tips and tricks and the terms that you know are helpful to you. Hopefully you're not blindly pulling in DFARS IP clauses or some such nonsense. But in order to pull in terms and conditions, you have to have a starting point. And the reason I say that is the volume of work for any defense procurement official is too high for you to craft custom agreements. I can't imagine going to any of my bosses, you know, and saying, hey, for the next year, I'm gonna sit down and think about negotiating this contract, right? They say, what about the other 30 contracts you have to award? I disagree in that you can't borrow from the FAR. I think you can absolutely borrow from the FAR. I don't think you should scratch off DFARS and then call it a new clause. I think you should understand every element of what you put in there why it protects you or why it doesn't protect you and then craft it. That might be a level a little bit too high for your typical procurement official, but that's the level of work that should be done. At the end of the day, these are legal arrangements with liability involved. You know, the FARS, the FAR does one thing great. It protects folks so that you can assembly line procurement at a level below the attorneys. OTAs are more attorney work. Yeah, I hear you. I'm a big uh, believer in the transaction cost economics literature. <laughs> and you can imagine how huge transactions costs would be if you had to do everything from scratch every time, kind of in a vacuum. Yeah, I have a question here from an anonymous attendee. The question is, does an OTA focus on collaboration complicate the OCI, I believe that's organizational conflict of interest issue in a subsequent RFP for production? So if you, Let's just take FAR contracts, forget OTA. If you take FAR contracts and you have a company that develops a new technology, are they OCI'd out from producing that technology? No, um, there's an exception to that for folks that develop the technology. Um, so I, I think OCIs are an interesting thing. Uh, I, understand the, I understand the question is more of a, if it's a collaborative back and forth, maybe the government's getting input on how to develop the requirement. But at the end of the day, these are supposed to be prototyping projects where the commercial company is bringing a technology and developing that technology and then providing a prototype to the government. They are absolutely able to produce 
the prototype that they've developed. What madness it would be if all we could do is, is prototype with folks with, with uh, limited data rights and then wait around for those data rights to become unlimited so that we could produce things. So good answer. I'm glad uh, we have you as a legal expert too, right? You have a law degree. <laughs> so uh, OCIs, have a, OCIs have a very unique uh, relationship with OTA. If you go back to the beginning of OCI, which is like the 84 NDAA, I want to say, it goes back 83 or 84, you know, OCIs use the term procurement contract. So then the question is, hey, you know, because SECA uses procurement contracts, so SECA doesn't apply to OTAs. Does the same thing apply to the concept of OCI? So there's a, a unique, you know, legal research question in there as well. But from a practical sense, if I ever had a CETA contractor who is providing advice on something and, and creating an OCI, we would recognize that from a contracting perspective, and then they would have an issue with competing on the follow-on. These aren't CETA contractors. These are the folks actually developing the technology. So we got another question from the audience. I want to give a little context to this because again, in your interesting post this morning, you said, if your default position is to request other than cost or pricing data for every procurement, then it's time to skill up. So <laughs> with that in mind, David asks, outside of price, how should acquisition professionals determine value? My comment this morning was to speak directly to an issue that that is really prevalent currently. And it doesn't answer David's question. So we'll see if I get to David's question. In the price realm, the, there's a current issue with how OTAs are being executed. And that is that the kind of traditional way that you see right now is the kind of information being requested by the government on the pricing side really looks to like what you would call certified cost and pricing data in the far world. There's no certification, so you can call it other than cost and pricing data. Other than cost and pricing data is supposed to be the last resort of the OTA practitioner. And so I bring it up because this is one of the key concerns of vendors when they're engaging with DOD is the pricing and the amount of information they're gonna to have to give on their, their own pricing information or own cost accounting information. And yet it's one area where we continue, and I say we as, as in the DOD OTA community, continue to default to asking for these things. And now I understand why. There's a reason why that DOD is asking for it. Because price analysis of a non-commercial developmental item is hard work. That is very hard work to do. It's the, probably the hardest work in pricing. And so you, you get into this, this instance where you know, the government solicits for some kind of prototyping effort. They get some different technology solutions. It's not a services procurement, so I can't just line them up and look apples to apples. They're going to be different technology solutions, and they're going to have different pricing models. I can't look to a catalog to tell you how much those cost because it's not a commodity. So I get into the situation where it's, how do I price it? Well, it seems really hard to price it, so I'll just ask for cost and pricing data or other than cost and pricing data. Um, and from a, a commercial vendor, I think that's the point where a commercial vendor would say, whoa, I didn't think this was the way that we are doing business in this environment. 
right off the bat, I'm being asked for, you know, what are your taxes and your pay stubs and your labor rates and your overheads and what's in your overheads? And, and to me, I mean, that's an instance where, you know, for a small business, you might want to say, this seems like a lot of work. I'm not sure this is the right environment for us. So price analysis is the hardest. And within the government, it's not seen that way. So within the government, your really smart cost analysts are put on the big source selection with the big dollar value. And they're the ones that are assigned the $3,000 OEM sole source proposal to go through. You know, they dig through pages and pages and they do a lot of, of uh, forensic accounting type of work. And that is where you make your career as a cost price analyst. I got bad news for those cost price analysts. That's the easiest work that you're going to get. The vendor gave you everything and all your job was to organize it and make sure there was nothing weird in there. That, that was the job. Yes, there was giant volumes of data. I, I agree. I agree there's giant volumes, but that was the easier work. The harder work is when the vendor comes in and says, I think it's $2 million for this new thing I'm about to develop for you. It's non-commercial, but I'm a non-traditional defense contractor and I think it's worth $2 million. bucks. Price it. And that is a much harder and more complex and more advanced type of pricing. And the folks that are good at it, by the way, like I'll give you a perfect example. The commercial items group team out of Boston, Ryan Connell and team out of the Northeast Pricing Group recently published a white paper on pricing OTs. And that white paper goes right to this issue, which is you're going to get different solutions with different pricing models. You have to be able to draw analogy and correlation to commercial technologies in order to do pricing. And that's the most advanced form of pricing. So that was the comment I was getting to this morning. What was, what, what's uh, David Rossi's question? By the way, David, probably one of the smartest people involved in federal acquisition today. So I'm happy that he's here to heckle me today. Yeah, we had a nice in the chat conversation between David and Bill Greenwalt, who uh, helped put a lot of OTA provisions in the uh, NDAA a few years ago. So that's great. But David's specific question here was outside of price, how should the acquisition professional determine value? So, and told us how not to do it, it right? And some yeah. of the pitfalls of using price. And then it seems like there's just this more, you know, subjective, incommensurable aspect to you know finding these correlations and then deriving value from like you know the knowledge of what the thing is in the world yeah subjective is a bad word in in federal contracting and guess what these things are subjective sorry you know that's a rough place to work it's an uncomfortable place to work but at the end of the day you're making value judgments on whether a technology will prove out what impact that technology will have, um, where it will fit into the system, and whether it will transition field, you know, make it all the way in a long life through divestment. And so no one wants to hear that. They all want to hear, well, it's a numbers game and, and everybody plugs into a matrix and it spits out who the answer is. And that's not how it works. So I agree completely like with, with the premise of the question, which is how do you find value outside of price? Well, step one, you're already you're already providing some value because you're not, you shouldn't be looking at price when it comes to new technology development. The only factor price has to me in, in new technology development is how much money you have for the solution. So if I only have $5 million, I'm interested in the best $5 million or less solution you have to solve my problem. That's really all I care about money wise. And, and I know the, 
you know, the pricers and the auditors are having a heart attack. But the reality is that, you know, this isn't a service contract or a supply contract. These are agreements where we're trying to develop a solution to close a capability gap. We only have so much money in our pocket to do it. And so industry has already invested IR&D dollars, by the way, one way to value what you're getting for your money. But in my experience, the folks that bid on these projects usually come in over budget with an IR&D cost share. So what is my value? You know, the value is all about whether they close the capability gap or not, or provide a long-term solution. One thing that was unique that had been thrown away, thrown around for a while, and I know DIUX, when they had the X and they were still cool, had this philosophy that you could look at the problem you're solving and how much money it's costing you in Band-Aids currently, and then look at the technology solution that's going to solve it and do an analysis of, hey, I'm going to save X dollars by closing the wound permanently and not putting Band-Aids on it. I think that's a great approach, by the way, to pricing and determining fair and reasonableness is, hey, this is a $50 million solution and 50 million sounds like a lot, but it's solving a $250 million problem. So that's immense value to me. So, and I know I've talked about this before, but that's a great value proposition to look at what is the value of the problem I'm solving? How much money am I going to throw at the problem to, to continue to put band-aids on? So hopefully that addresses Mr. Rothside, sorry, major Rothside's question. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got to that because, you know, at least in economics for me going through the master's program and then afterwards, you know, the concept of opportunity costs was actually the hardest thing for me to grasp in the end. It was, it had nothing to do with, you know, marginal cost analyses and all these mathematical equations. It was literally opportunity costs, the value of alternatives and, and how that contributes to what the price is in a competitive economic environment. But in our world where we don't have those pricing signals, how do you still arrive at the same opportunity cost decisions? Now, we have a couple more minutes, but there's one thing that was at the top of my mind in terms of just seeing some people talking about this issue and complaints and then counter complaints. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about consortia and how a lot of, you know, between 2010 and 2019, you know, $11 billion has gone to consortia and about $5 billion or a little bit, about half of, of that amount went straight to a contractor. And some people have been complaining that consortia are kind of like gatekeepers to the companies between the government and the companies and there's growing bureaucracy. And again, this morning you said, quote, bashing OTA consortia demonstrates one's ignorance of alternative acquisition structures, end quote. So can you just talk a little bit about consortia and, and what you meant there? <laughs> uh, that was a shot right at David, by the way. It wasn't, it wasn't. He's too smart for this. So Here's the thing on consortia. Consortia are an easy target. Whoever's making the money are, at the time is an easy target. Um, I live in Detroit. GDLS and BAE are easy targets, right? Because they build the stuff that we buy. Consortia have become the easy targets. And so it's been really easy to say, there's two ways to OTA. There's the DIU CSO way to OTA. And there's the consortia way to OTA. And, and so that's the box that we've selected that we're gonna put ourselves in. Going forward, you're either gonna do a CSO or you're gonna do a consortia. And those are, those are the two things that you have to operate in. 
that is so far from the truth. And honestly, it really boxes you into an arena where you don't need to be. Within the current consortia, by the way, they're not all consortia. It's a group of organizations that take infinitely different structures and infinitely different legal organizational structures for different purposes. And so it's been really easy to bash the consortia because, you know, I can say, well, I had an experience with this consortia and, you know, we're human and putting things in categories, it feels good. But the reality is that between technology networks, accelerators, incubators, you know, chamber of commerce, collaboration, there's so many different structures of how companies can come together to discuss what they do in a technology area. And so the consortia get, they just get beat up relentlessly because it feels good. We always have to have someone to beat up on. And I got to tell you, I'm guilty of it. I'm sure I, I worked through two consortia at my time at Tardec. I've bought over, I've bought across multiple other consortia collaborations and technology networks in my time at Tardec. So I've been a customer of a lot of these different things. And I have complaints as a customer, you know, it, one good thing to be in DOD is be a noisy customer. And I did a good job of being one of the noisiest. But in order to get value, people like to complain about the different consortia. This is what I'll say about consortia. If you want to see where the value is, there's currently 34 different structures of consortia. So, you know, step one is understand how the 34 different models work. Start there. Step two is if you want to create a new model, number 35, in, in my estimation, great. Learn about the 34 and borrow the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff that you don't like and then create number 35. That would, that would honestly be good. And then there'll be a 36 and a 37. And I believe that that'll continue to happen. But the re reality of the consortia are, you know, they're all getting bashed because the dollars are going there, allegedly. But they're so divergent in how they're set up, how they're run, who runs them. And then the second piece I'll say on consortia is do your history. One of the largest consortia out there started as a research association that simply did nothing involved in contracting or OTA. They were just there to do the books. And so the research community said, we don't want to do the books. And the government community said, we don't want to do the books. What if we get a group of three or four people and we stick them with doing the books? And so that's how this body, this group grew up, this consortium management firm, as the suckers who would do the books. And so they grew up and there was multiple models that grew out of that, going all the way back to 2000 with DOTC, Defense Ordnance Technology Consortium. And that was a model at the beginning. And that model worked relatively well to allow people to collaborate, industries developing, governments investing. There's the group of suckers in the middle that do the paperwork. And that was that model. That model has evolved, and I'll tell you, between 2017 and today, the government bears some responsibility for the pieces that they don't like about consortia. Because from a government perspective, if you look at the solicitations for new consortia between 2017 and today, it will look like an IDIQ for you because that's what the government understands. Hey, I don't understand this collaboration thing and the suckers who do the billing, what I understand is IDIQ. So my solicitation will dictate an IDIQ structure and then those folks will bid on it. And then I'll complain about it that it's like an IDIQ after I award it. 
it has gone as far as one solicitation. I won't mention which, but it's easy enough to find. One solicitation came out and used a services NAICS code as the NAICS code for the structure. So set it up as a, a service contract to begin. And it resulted in a consortium that exists today. But what happened was it came out with that services NAICS code. So the government bears some responsibility for dictating what they think the structure should be based on what they know, which is an ME, IDIQ, multiple award task order structure. Great, so that's all the time we have today. I'm glad we could do this uh, event with uh, George Mason, Center for Government Contracting and the Public Spend Forum. Ben McMartin, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.